This episode of Tales of True Crime contains adult language and graphic subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. For best listening experience, turn up the volume. In the movies, we always know when something bad is about to happen. It starts in a place with an idyllic name and peaceful reputation. A place like Downers Grove, Illinois. Usually, the story is set in a place like Downers Grove to provide a contrast for the horrors that will come later. Vibrant, smiling, happy students populate the campus of the local high school, unprepared. Then, a skilled filmmaker injects a bit of musical score. Something dark, intended to stir a sense of foreboding in the viewer and build tension. A killer watches, stalks his intended victim, and then the soundtrack goes silent. Everything gets quiet. A jump scare is coming, and the viewer knows the killer is about to strike. A villain in a black robe and mask leaps from the shadows, and the terror becomes real. On January 12, 1976, the setting at Downers Grove South High School was very much like that. Placid and bucolic, but there was no ominous soundtrack to signal the impending crime. Students who resided in places with names like Butternut Court and Crabtree Street in Chicago satellite communities like Woodridge, Aurora, and Lyle couldn't know that a murderer was among them. He wasn't wearing a robe and a mask. He was also a recent graduate of Downers Grove. He was one of them hiding in plain sight. Pamela Maurer was 16 years old, a Downers Grove student. She spent part of that night playing cards with a friend as a winter storm that would drop seven inches of snow bore down on the Chicago West suburbs. At about 8.30, they left for a mutual friend's house in Woodridge. Pam spent about an hour there then decided to walk to a McDonald's, less than a mile away, to get a Coke. It was a Monday night, a school night, and when Pam didn't make it home by 11 p.m., her mother called the police. If you're a parent, you can relate to the fear Pam Maurer's mother must have felt. On any other night, a girl would be in her bedroom studying in the dim light of her bedside reading lamp, or talking on the phone with a friend. If she had an early exam the next day, perhaps she would have already been under the covers, sound asleep. In northern latitudes like Chicago, the sun sets before 5 p.m. in January. It had already been dark for hours, and it was freezing outside. But Pam wasn't home. A mother wonders, where is my child? Is she cold? Is she scared? Is she safe? Around 7.30 on the morning of January 13th, her greatest fears were realized. Thomas Patterman, the Lyle Township Highway Commissioner, spotted a purse lying along College Road. Thinking someone might have been hit by a passing car, Patterman made a U-turn and returned to the scene. On the other side of the guardrail, he found the fully clothed body of Pam Maurer. 
She had bruising around her neck that suggested she had been strangled. This is the Tales of True Crime podcast. Not far from Pam Maurer's body, police discovered a three-foot length of rubber hose they believed might have been the murder weapon. Investigators described it as half-inch thick tubing of a special type with limited distribution and believed it would be the key that helped them find Pam Maurer's killer. A wide-ranging investigation by Lyle Police, the DuPage County Sheriff's Department, and Downers Grove, Woodridge, and Napersville Police Departments followed. The hose did not immediately turn out to be the clue investigators had hoped. Pam had never arrived at the McDonald's, so police investigated two other locations where they thought Pam might have gone to get her soda, a nearby laundromat and food store, without results. They believed the person responsible for Pam's murder may have staged the scene, threw her purse on the shoulder of the road to make it look exactly like what Commissioner Patterman had originally suspected, that Pam had been hit and killed by a car. But the evidence told a different story. Although initial media reports said Pam had not been sexually assaulted, a closer investigation revealed otherwise. The scene was processed, and in accordance with Illinois state law pertaining to murders, evidence was collected never to be disposed of until the case was solved. Dozens of people were questioned, and some took polygraph tests. Lyle Police Chief M.J. Worth said there were two juvenile males police wanted to question, but they were advised not to cooperate by their attorneys. Leads were pursued, and threads traced to their ends. Nothing led to Pam Maurer's killer. Years passed. Seventeen years later, in 1993, on the heels of a successful resolution to another Chicago-area cold case using DNA evidence, police took another look at Pam's murder, without success. Her killer was not identified. March 6, 1979, three years after the murder of Pam Maurer. Annette Lazar reported a man sexually assaulted her at gunpoint in an Aurora home. Lazar had been walking to a friend's house when a man pulled up and asked her what she was up to. He was a skinny man with a Cheshire cat grin and brilliant blue eyes, and he lured her into his car with a promise to sell her some pot. He took her to a home and led her to the basement where he had crafted a cornball pickup lair. Lazar said the moody blues, nights in white satin, played on a stereo, and the man showed her his pet falcon. Soon, he was making romantic advances, which she rebuffed. That's when the man became violent. He grabbed her by the throat and forced her into a bedroom. He put a 9mm handgun to her temple and told her to disrobe. In an interview with the Chicago Tribune, Lazar said, I told him that I was going to call the police and he told me to go ahead. He said no one would believe me because he lived with a cop. Lazar reported her attacker ripped off her pants and she decided to cooperate to save her own life. She asked the attacker to remove the clip from his weapon while he assaulted her and he complied. 
In a last-ditch attempt to escape her attacker, Annette tried flattery. She told him she liked him, praised his looks, and told him he was really her type. She said if he would let her go, she would be his girlfriend, and to bolster the illusion, she wrote her phone number on a piece of paper. It worked, and her attacker allowed her to leave. Annette Lazar went to the hospital and endured a rape kit test. She reported her assault to authorities and led them to the home where she was attacked. Her attacker's name was Bruce Lindahl, and the home where she was raped was owned by Aurora police officer Dave Torres. According to a story published in the Chicago Tribune in January 2020, Lindahl and Torres were close friends. The police referred the case to the Kane County State's Attorney on March 26, 1979. When questioned, Lindahl produced the piece of paper with Annette Lazar's phone number in her handwriting and told investigators she was his girlfriend. The authorities suspected a lover's squabble and the state's attorney decided not to prosecute. Years later, Annette Lazar gave an interview to ABC7 Eyewitness News. I had bruises on my neck and I even had a red mark where he put the gun to my temple and they didn't believe me. I just was in shock. I thought they would believe me, you know? And that's why I went to the police to prevent this from happening to anyone else. It appeared Lindahl's prediction had come true. Nobody believed her. Did Officer Dave Torres' ownership of the house where the assault occurred play a factor in the state's attorney's decision not to prosecute? It's hard to say. Records from the time seem to indicate the opposite. Officer Torres held mostly low-ranking positions in the Aurora Police Department and did not advance as quickly as many of his peers. His association with Bruce Lindahl, a friendship that started when they met at skydiving classes, was regarded with derision by his fellow officers. Years later, Officer Torres would say he believed his friendship with Bruce Lindahl hindered his law enforcement career. In hindsight, it seems Dave Torres was simply a poor judge of character when it came to Bruce Lindahl. In October 1979, seven months after Lindahl's assault on Annette Lazar, Dave Torres decided to begin fresh in a new home, and Bruce Lindahl bought his house. He would continue to use the home for his sick desires, and the decision not to prosecute Lindahl for his attack on Annette Lazar would cost people their lives. In June 1980, Karen Weeks-Kozman, a resident who lived just five doors down from the home Bruce Lindahl had purchased from Officer Torres the previous year, was in her driveway in the process of gathering her kids into the family van when a naked woman ran up to her asking for help. The woman was Deborah Coleander, and she frantically described being sexually assaulted, threatened with a gun, and photographed, nude, by a man with brilliant blue eyes. Karen Weeks Kozman immediately knew who she was talking about. It was her neighbor, Bruce. Debbie had escaped completely nude when Lindahl fell asleep. Karen quickly ushered Debbie inside, offered her some clothes, and the police were summoned. 
The story she told bore all the hallmarks of a calculated plot by a serial predator. Debbie Coleander had been locking her bike at Northgate Shopping Center when Bruce Lindahl approached her and asked for assistance in getting his car started. He asked her to get in the car and step on the gas pedal while he tinkered under the hood. But as soon as she got in the car, he pulled a knife and held it to her throat. He started the car and took Coleander to his house. Officer Dave Torres was on duty when the call went out from dispatch to his former address, and he rushed straight to Lindahl's house. Torres said, I made a beeline over there and was the first one through the door. I didn't even knock. He found Bruce Lindahl, naked, in bed, asleep. They found a gun, a camera on a tripod, and naked photos of Debbie Coleander. Officer Torres told the Chicago Tribune, I said, hey, Bruce, we have to talk to you. He slipped from one bedroom to another and put clothes on. I said, you need to go downtown. They took Lindahl into custody on charges of deviant sexual contact, aggravated kidnapping, and rape. It was June 23, 1980. With a trial upcoming, you would think Bruce Lindahl would have been on his best behavior. But it is perhaps a sign of his arrogance and sense of personal invincibility that he was not. He was out on bond, and Karen Weeks Kozman kept in touch with daily phone calls to the police. Because as she told the Aurora Beacon News, he would walk his dog in the rain and just stand on the corner looking at my house or he'd drive past the house and stop and watch my girls playing in the yard, sort of teasing or threatening me. Lindahl was apparently unafraid to run his mouth either during the time he was out on bond. In late summer of 1980, a friend who lived out of state stayed with Lindahl for about two weeks. Lindahl told the friend about his forthcoming trial and offered him $2,000, a handgun, and drugs if he would make Debbie Coleander disappear. The friend did not take Lindahl up on his offer, but it would be months before he informed the police. Before Lindahl could be brought to trial, Coleander disappeared. After leaving her job, a security guard walked her to her car and watched her drive away, and he was the last person to see her alive. In the months immediately after, Lindahl was under heavy scrutiny from the authorities, but he made no effort to curtail his illegal activities. According to a timeline published in the Chicago Tribune, just two months after Debbie Coleander disappeared, Lindahl reportedly attacked another woman outside an Aurora restaurant. It would be months before she identified Lindahl from a photograph. In January 1981, Lindahl was charged with assault on a police officer and weapons charges relating to a scuffle with police. He reportedly aimed a shotgun at a sheriff's deputy who attempted to serve him a warrant for illegally recording a phone call. Months had passed, and the state of Illinois sought multiple continuances to delay prosecution of Lindahl as they sought a break in the case of Debbie Coleander, but found none and she remained missing. With no accuser to testify, the sexual assault charges against Lindahl had to be dismissed on March 30, 1981. 
It was another year before Coleander's body was found in a farmer's field, buried in a shallow grave, April 28, 1982. Her body was badly decomposed and a cause of death could not be determined, and Bruce Lindahl was suspect number one. Problem. Bruce Lindahl was already dead. In the early morning hours of April 5, 1981, at about 1.45 a.m., a woman who was dating Bruce Lindahl came home to her apartment at 1041 West Ogden Avenue in Naperville, Illinois, to find a horror show. Just inside the sliding glass doors of her ground floor apartment, an 18-year-old acquaintance, Charles Huber, lay on the floor, dead, with more than two dozen stab wounds. Her boyfriend, Bruce Lindahl, was also dead, practically lying on top of Huber. There were signs of a struggle. A lamp had been knocked over, and there were copious amounts of blood everywhere. It had only been five days since charges against Lindahl were dropped for the sexual assault on Debbie Coleander. Naperville Police Chief Robert Marshall, who was at the time a rookie police officer, took the call. When we get dispatched to calls like that, we're ready for anything, Marshall said. The way it was dispatched was an individual had come home to her apartment and saw there were two bodies laying by her sliding glass doors. When I got there, it was clear when I looked at both bodies and checked for vitals on the bodies, they were both deceased, he said. Initially, the authorities didn't know what to make of the crime scene. It appeared someone, an intruder perhaps, had killed both men. They thought there might be an offender on the loose. They did not know that the offender was one of the men dead on the floor. It was only after the coroner performed an autopsy that the series of events became clear. Witnesses reported seeing Lindahl and Huber together at a bowling alley the previous night. It's unclear whether they had just met or had known each other previously. For reasons that are still fuzzy, Lindahl and Huber got into a dispute and Bruce Lindahl stabbed Charles Huber 28 times with a six-inch kitchen knife. Investigators determined in the course of the struggle that ensued, Charles Huber fought for his life, and Lindahl accidentally stabbed himself in the right leg, severing his femoral artery. Depending on how serious the injury, a victim of a severed femoral artery can bleed to death in three to four minutes and lose consciousness as quickly as 30 seconds to one minute after injury. Charles Huber was not able to save his own life, but his struggle with Bruce Lindahl cost the killer his life, and Lindahl had perhaps as little as one minute to contemplate the end of his existence. Lindahl's death undoubtedly saved many more people their lives. In researching this case, my first question was whether Lindahl had hired Charles Huber to do away with Debbie Coleander, and once charges for her sexual assault were dropped, Lindahl sought to kill Huber, the only remaining person who could point the finger in his direction. Just like he had tried to do previously with his friend from out of town, perhaps he had hired Charles Huber to kill Debbie Coleander, and now he had to do away with Huber. Investigators were unable to develop any evidence to that effect, however, and were never able to determine the exact relationship 
between Bruce Lindahl and Charles Huber. As far as we know, Charles Huber was simply a victim. With the death of Bruce Lindahl, a killer's reign of terror came to an end. I would note here that, for a time, some were reluctant to refer to Bruce Lindahl as a serial killer. At the time of his death in 1981, despite his series of depraved sexual assaults, Bruce Lindahl was only known to have killed one person, Charles Huber. In 1982, when a hunter discovered Debbie Coleander's body, the authorities immediately suspected Lindahl of the murder but couldn't prove it. Lindahl was already dead anyway. It would be another 37 years before the authorities would eventually settle the question conclusively. If this were an episode of a popular TV true crime docudrama, this would be the part where the silver-haired narrator with the incredible voice goes back to the beginning to remind you of that storyline that seemed like it might be out of place. A dangling thread that draws just enough of your attention to make you think, hmm, this is going to be relevant later in the story. Through the 80s and 90s, coalition of allied investigators and law enforcement agencies continued a dogged investigation into the murder of Pam Maurer. And although progress slowed to a crawl for decades, they never gave up. As I told you back at the beginning, in 1993, with the advent of DNA technology, the police re-examined Pam's case with a focus on DNA analysis. It would take decades more for the technology to advance to a stage at which it could provide answers for Pam Maurer's family. They finally got those answers in 2019, in a press conference by DuPage County State's Attorney Robert Berlin. The audio is not fantastic, but it's sufficient to tell the story, so please bear with me for three minutes, and I'll let you hear it from State's Attorney Berlin himself. In 2001, Biologic evidence collected from Pam's body was analyzed at the DuPage County Sheriff's Crime Laboratory and a DNA profile of her suspected killer was identified. That profile was entered into the combined DNA index system, also known as the CODIS system, but no hits were ever generated. In 2019, additional and advanced DNA testing and analysis was conducted on the forensic evidence by Parabon Nano Labs at the request of the Lyle Police Department and the DuPage County State's Attorney's Office. First, DNA phenotyping was used, which is the process of predicting physical appearance and ancestry from unidentified DNA evidence. This resulted in the creation of a snapshot prediction for traits such as the suspect's eye color, hair color, skin color, face shape, and a composite which provides an approximation of the appearance of the unknown subject. Next, genetic genealogy analysis was conducted using a public genetic genealogy database and traditional genealogy research to build a family tree to identify potential new leads in the case. Detectives from the Lyle Police Department then used traditional investigative methods to confirm the genealogical information and they identified a person of interest, Bruce Lindahl, who was deceased. 
In the fall of 2019, with the cooperation of the DuPage County Coroner, Richard Jorgensen, and his office, the Lyle Police Department, Sheriff James Mendrick, and the DuPage County Sheriff's Office, and members of the State's Attorney's Investigations Division, a court order was obtained to exhume the body of Bruce Lindahl. On November 6, 2019, Bruce Lindahl's body was exhumed and specimens were collected from his remains in an attempt to obtain possible DNA for comparison to the DNA collected from Pam Maurer's body in 1976. Both DuPage County Sheriff's Crime Laboratory and DNA Labs International were successful in extracting and profiling DNA from the remains of Bruce Lindahl, which confirmed that the DNA evidence recovered from Pam's body was consistent with Bruce Lindahl's DNA profile. <clears throat> Bruce Lindahl killed Pam Maurer in 1976. The DNA evidence says so. For every offender named, there are always a few, usually friends and family members, who doubt their guilt. For those people, State's Attorney Berlin revealed the odds that someone else could have been the source of the DNA found on Pam Maurer's body. The chance that a person at random would be included as a contributor is 1 in 1.8 quadrillion individuals. 1.8 quadrillion to 1. For those doing the math at home, that's 239,000 times the population of the planet. Bruce Lindahl killed Pam Maurer in 1976 without a shadow of a doubt, and Pam's case was the first murder solved with forensic genealogy in the state of Illinois. In addition to the DNA evidence, the state's attorney's press conference featured blown-up photos of Bruce Lindahl side-by-side side with an artist's prior renderings of Pam Maurer's killer that had been based on a DNA phenotype analysis, and the resemblance was remarkable. Lyle, Illinois detective Chris Loudon traveled to Texas, where Pam Maurer's family moved shortly after the murder, to inform her loved ones. After 44 years, they did not expect to ever get an answer, but they were relieved to have some closure. In the absence of justice, closure is all a victim's family can ask for. Pam's family got it, but there are other families out there, mothers and fathers and siblings of young women who were killed in the 70s and early 80s in the Chicago suburbs who may get their closure too. Because the story does not end with Pam Maurer. The authorities and a wider consortium of online armchair sleuths believe Bruce Lindahl may be responsible for many more crimes, as many as 12 murders and nine rapes. And further DNA analysis is now underway in a number of other cases. Some of the names that have been mentioned as possible Lindahl victims include Patricia Sue Early, 17, her remains were found in a field in an advanced state of decomposition more than a year later, cause of death undetermined. Linda Susan Rhine, 19, who disappeared two weeks before Patricia Early. Her body was found along a road by a jogger in southeast DuPage County. She had been stabbed a number of times, and police believe her killer may have chased her down and killed her after she escaped his car. Perhaps most notably, Investigators believe Bruce Lindahl was responsible for the disappearance of Debbie McCall, 
who went missing on November 5, 1979, from that serene place we talked about in the beginning, Downers Grove. She was last seen wearing a beige hooded zip-up jacket, a sweater, blue jeans, light brown suede shoes, and a yellow gold necklace. In the murders of Patricia Early and Linda Rhine, it is the similarity in circumstances that seems to indicate Bruce Lindahl is the offender. In the disappearance of Debbie McCall, it's more than that. After Lindahl's death in 1981, his home, the former home of Aurora police officer Dave Torres, went up for sale. Virginia Garza and her husband purchased the home and they found hundreds of photos of women stashed in the walls, under the floorboards, and in the rafters. The Garzas were unaware of the home's link to a killer and the violent things that took place there, and unfortunately, unaware of their significance, they threw the pictures out. Police were able, however, to recover some photos from the home, and although I've been unable to find a reputable published description of the photos, Rumors abound that some of the women photographed look like willing participants, and others look terrified. The camera and tripod that police found in Lindahl's bedroom years earlier had been used to photograph many, many women, willing or not. One of the women whose photograph was found in Lindahl's home was Debbie McCall. Her body has never been found. When authorities revealed Bruce Lindahl's previously unknown past as a murderer of women, they added his name to a list of offenders that grows larger by the day. Killers identified after their own deaths thanks to new methods and forensic science. In the last two episodes of Tales of True Crime Alone, I told you about similar offenders Frank Whippich and Jeffrey Lynn Hand both of whom were long dead by the time they were connected to previously unknown victims. If recent events are any indication, we can expect this to happen even more often in the near future. The prior shortcomings of forensic science will be revealed. Families will get closure. Long dead killers will be exposed and their names and reputations left disgraced. And if we're lucky, Every once in a while, a DNA profile and genealogical investigation will serve the purpose of a musical score in a Hollywood movie by catching our attention in a quiet moment and alerting us that something bad is about to happen. A killer who still lives, who aspires to kill again, will be identified, captured, and brought to justice before they can hurt anyone else. Anyone with information on the crimes of Bruce Lindahl is urged to call the DuPage County State's Attorney's Office at 630-407-8107 or Lyle Police at 630-271-4252. If you enjoy Tales of True Crime, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And lock your doors. I'll talk to you again in two weeks. Tales of True Crime is written and produced by Troy Larson for Midwest Radio of Fargo-Moorhead. For transcripts, sources, credits, and some occasional cat pictures, 
Follow me on Twitter at True Crime Troy. Music by Kevin McLeod in Competech.com. Creative Commons license via filmmusic.io. Feature photo by Stanislav, courtesy Pexels.com.